Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. It is my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome to the My Teacher Podcast someone who is my teacher and my rabbi and has been for almost my entire life, Rabbi Vernon Kurtz. Rabbi Kurtz recently made Aliyah, immigrating to Israel in 2019. Prior to that, he served as spiritual leader of two conservative congregations in the Chicago area, including 31 years at North Suburban Synagogue Beth El in Highland Park, Illinois. I got to know Rabbi Kurtz and his beautiful family when I was a young boy at Congregation Road Faith Sedek in Chicago, Rabbi Kurtz's first pulpit. Rabbi Kurtz officiated at my bar mitzvah, my wedding, one of my rabbinic installation ceremonies, and has been a constant presence of support throughout my life. Rabbi Vernon Kurtz, welcome to the My Teacher podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Bernstein, and it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you very much for that very kind and heartwarming introduction. I should close up now and not say anything because I feel good after you said what you did. We will soon discuss influential teachers in your life whom you encountered as a younger rabbi, but I'd like to go back a bit further and ask you to describe your early life and the circumstances that led to your career in the rabbinate. Sure, be glad to. I was born in Toronto, Canada. My parents were as well, and we were a very close family. I would spend most Shabbat afternoons with my grandfather, who had a great influence upon me. I was a day school product in the early years of day school in Toronto. In fact, I went from what was equivalent of kindergarten through grade 13. In Ontario, there were 13 grades at that time, all the way through day school until I went to a college or university, as it's called in Toronto. And that had a huge effect upon me. I learned about Jewish life. I learned Hebrew, which of course has been very helpful as we made Aliyah to Israel. We grew up in a home which uh, Jewish observance was part of our lives. Synagogue attendance was part of our lives. And all of that had a huge effect upon me. I remember holidays with parents and grandparents and extended family. And that was a really, obviously, when I look back on it, a very important part of my foundation for not only who I became, but what I did as well. I graduated high school, and during my years in high school, I met a young woman who eventually became my wife. We went together for seven years, and her family was also involved in Jewish life. Uh, we were more involved in the Orthodox movement, at least we were members of an Orthodox synagogue, although looking back on it, we were much more conservative in our uh, understanding of Jewish life. My wife, Bryna, who was involved in, and her family were very involved in a conservative synagogue. And slowly, I became involved in the conservative movement through USY, the youth group. Eventually, we both were counselors at Camp Remind Canada, the summer program of the conservative movement. And I began moving towards more study of Judaism, etc. Uh, when I graduated high school, I went to York University in Toronto. And there were a group of us with a common background who would get together for lunch. We would study Jewish subjects. We got involved in Hillel, which is a Jewish campus organization. And more and more, I became uh, involved in Jewishly 
my paper, I have a BA degree in political science. And as I look back on it, the papers that I wrote, the courses that I took all had a Jewish flavor attached to them as much as they could have. As an example, I took a political philosophy course and I specifically wrote on Baruch Spinoza, which allowed me to do some Jewish research into Spinoza and his thought and other things. There were two conservative rabbis who were professors there who just left the seminary, became very close to them, and they became good friends after a period of time. And as I came to the end of my university studies, I had to decide where I was going next. I did apply to law school. I was accepted in one law school, but I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do. I'd never before been to Israel. Today, people thankfully they're going younger, but those days it was not common. And I decided through the Camp Ramah program to take a year off and study in Israel through the Melton Education Program. My wife, Bryna, was a junior in college and she took her junior year at Hebrew University. We became engaged and came to Israel. And it was during that year that I studied at Hebrew University and also the, sem the JTS program here that I decided to uh, enter the Jewish Theological Seminary. I was accepted before I came back. And then in 1972, I actually entered the seminary as a rabbinical student. So it was a, an evolutionary kind of approach. Looking back on it, some said to me, oh, we knew you were going to do that anyhow, because that's <laughs> the way you always seem to be moving, evolving. But looking back on it uh, in my early years, I would not have thought I would be a rabbi my entire life. I'm glad I made the decision. You were ordained at JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary, in 1976. Correct. I was in a four-year program of studies. One year was back in Israel as part of the seminary program. And in 1976, I was ordained and Bryna received her MA in Jewish history at the same graduation. So after your ordination, you set out for your first rabbinic post. You landed at Congregation Road Faith Tzedek in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. So I'd like to ask you to set the scene of the congregation and the senior rabbi who was there at the time who brought you to Hyde Park and his influence on you. Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, I, when I was leaving the seminary, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. At first, I thought it might be youth and education. I actually was involved in some doctoral studies, but a number of my colleagues said to me or my fellow students, should look at a pulpit. Why don't you take a look? And I, I went through a number of interviews. And one of those interviews that was open was an assistant rabbi position at Congregation Road Facetic in Chicago. There are various reasons that I thought it might be interesting. One, I didn't think I was ready yet to really take on a pulpit. I didn't think I was trained and ready to go, although I had some of the Jewish background, clearly. Two, uh, and this will be an interesting one for some of your listeners, I was a Canadian citizen and I came as a, on a student visa and we were worried about my work status. So there was such a visa where you could study first and then work. And that appealed to me and appealed to the congregation. And they actually helped me get a green card after a year and a half of working at the congregation. So believe it or not, that had some effect upon it as well. It was beginning of June. It was late when I came out to Congregation of Faith And I remember the first evening I came there, I went to see Rabbi Ralph Simon of Blessed Memory, who was the senior rabbi, who was almost 70 years old at that time. I was a kid, needless to say, just a kid. And uh, I remember seeing this man pictured right now in my eyes, walking down Hyde Park Boulevard in a jaunty kind of way, full of energy, dressed up because he was going to do a wedding. And we went up to his study and we sat for, I'm going to say, 45 minutes to an hour. We made an instant connection. He liked me right away and said, you know, I think you should come here. Maybe you'll take some of my work and everything else. And I said, 
look, I'm not so sure. I want to come learn, etc. And I remember him taking me in the car and driving with me up Lakeshore Drive in downtown Chicago. He was extremely proud to have lived in Chicago for so many years and of the city. And I came back and that was evening. The next day I met with the committee. By the time I went home, I already had a contract in my pocket if I wanted to come. And then I had to decide whether that's what I wanted to do. My wife and I, Brian and I had been married at that point. I decided that the Midwest was close enough to Toronto, that the people seemed nice. I'll come for two years. That was my contract. We'll move on after that. Life has a way of working out. And that's what brought me to Chicago. There were a couple of people who were very influential. Names that are very familiar to you, Rabbi Bernstein, Jules Levenstein, Louis Weiner, all those people who were giants in the conservative movement in Chicago were very influential. Louis Weiner in particular stands out as someone who helped found Camp Ramah in Wisconsin. Correct. and very involved in everything. And I kept getting messages that the vice chancellor of the seminary wanted to see me, who kept telling me, Louis Weiner wants you to come to be his rabbi in Chicago. So they worked on me and, and it eventually worked and thank God it worked. So in 1976, in the summer of that year, I came and moved to Chicago. The interesting part was I met Rabbi Simon, I believe it was June the 6th, June the 7th or the 8th, he left for Israel for it was his usual want was for an entire summer. If I had come out three days later and not met him, I would have never have come because he was the person I was going to work with. And for the first time, first two months I was there, I was there by myself, totally by myself, in the sense that he wasn't around. And he only came back towards the end of August when we began to work together and get a relationship, etc. And I came as the assistant rabbi. Two years later, I became the associate rabbi. Five years, or three years later, or five years altogether, I became the rabbi of the congregation. Rabbi Simon became the senior rabbi. And then after 10 years, I was officially the rabbi, and he became the rabbi emeritus. So I was there all together for 12 years, and it was a very good 12 years. Our two girls, both Adassa and Shira, were born in Hyde Park. I grew as a person. I grew as a rabbi, as a teacher, which we'll talk about as well, uh, in Hyde Park. And I have very, very fond memories of working in that place. And uh, as you know, in my close relationship with your family, who are still in Hyde Park, it was a, a very influential area and congregation not only in my life, but in yours as well. We'll get into the larger dynamics of the neighborhood and the university in a moment, but I'd like to just dig a bit deeper into your relationship with Rabbi Simon of Blessed Memory and his influence on you and what you saw in him that has influenced you and that you have taken with you through your career. Great question. So if I might, just to give a little bit of background on him, he was born in Newark, New Jersey. He graduated the seminary and was ordained in 1931. The first five years he was in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and he used to talk about the Johnstown flood. I remember his early stories. Then he was in Jackson Heights, Queens from 37 to 43. And then he came to Chicago. He came to Congregation Road Faith Zedek in 1943 and officially became emeritus in 1987, passed away in 1996. And I spoke at memorial service in his memory. He passed away in California. He was a giant in the conservative movement. I knew the name before I came to Chicago, which is why I thought it would be a good person to learn from. The congregation itself in its day was a very large congregation. It was a congregation involved in education. It was a congregation that was an initiator of a number of programs. You mentioned Camp Ramah before. Rabbi Simon is considered to be the person who started Camp Ramah in Wisconsin, which was the first of the Camps Ramah, together with lay people like Lou Weiner and Joe Levine and Maxwell Bell and a few others. But he was the initiator. The story was he wanted his son to go to a Jewish camp. And so he created one. And the Ramah network is all across the country, indeed all in Canada and all across the world. And over a period of time, he was a mentor to many people. He was a, a great teacher. 
and was very involved in community. During my time with him, he wasn't the person who would sit you down and say, I want you to learn this, or I want you to do that, or he never reviewed a sermon of mine, which I was wont to do when I had assistant rabbis. I may have gone to him with some questions, but he wasn't the one to come forward. He kind of left me on my own and said somewhat sink or swim uh, to some extent. And there were times when I was a little disappointed because I would have liked to him to uh, come in and said, let me look at your sermon and I can give you some background or this and that. And other times, though, uh, whenever I knocked on his door, he always had a moment for me and always took the time. And again, we were generations apart. I mean, you know, I came in the late 70s and was there in the 80s. And it was a different world that he had come to to, to minister to. But what I saw was what I, what I learned from him and looking back then, and especially as I did my own rabbinate, was I learned a great deal from him by watching him and seeing who he was what he represented, how he lived, and how he was a rabbi. It's difficult to separate, as you know, Rabbi Bernstein, the person from the rabbi. It's very difficult. You always carry this title, I'm now Rabbi Emeritus, I'm not active in the pulpit, but I'm still rabbi to lots of people. You can't move that title away. He was the same kind of person. It was who he was, and it represented him, but in a very nice way. So while there were differences in style and in the times of our rabbinate, he allowed me to grow, he allowed me to make mistakes, he allowed me to learn. He gave me opportunities on the pulpit immediately. Didn't say, I want you to just watch. Already on the first high holidays, I was preaching. Over a period of time, some of my ideas, as I felt more comfortable and confident, were brought into the congregation. As I look back now, I realize that I patterned myself on, on a number of things that he did, and I'll try to put those out to you. One, he was a wonderful teacher. He taught a Talmud class every Shabbat afternoon between Mincha and Mara, between the afternoon and the evening service. When I was on, when I was a, a rabbi, I always taught a Talmud class. It was getting back to the sources. It wasn't a Shabbat afternoon, it was Tuesday morning, but that became the central focus of one of my education opportunities. The second thing was he was always prepared. This is a rabbi who was filled with class and knew a great deal and was very urbane, et cetera. But I never saw him come to a meeting, a program, a sermon without a card or something that was written on. And I learned always to be prepared. There are times that you need to think on your feet, but always to be prepared with something in your pocket, sermons written out, pastoral work done, etc. The next part that I learned from him was as important as it was to be outside the congregation, I'll talk about that in a minute, it was much more important for him to be inside the congregation. He was a wonderful pastor. He met with people. He was wonderful at life cycle events. People remembered him for years at weddings and bar mitzvahs and especially at funerals where he comforted many mourners. And then he spent a great deal of time outside the congregation as well. In Chicago, he was chairman of the Israel Bonds campaign, only rabbi to do so chairman of what became the Jewish United Fund, the only rabbi to do so. He was very involved in the rabbinical assembly, locally, nationally, and internationally. Now, in my life, I became very involved in the Federation. I became very involved in the rabbinical assembly, including locally, nationally, and internationally. Both of us were presidents of the International Rabbinical Assembly, the Association of Conservative Rabbis. Both of us over a period of time, we were involved in interfaith activities, our locally and nationally. Both of us had Israel on our agenda. He started work in the, in the movement with the Masorti movement, the conservative movement in Israel. I continued that. We saw him in the summer. He had two places in Israel. We eventually bought a place in Israel and now have made Aliyah and live in Israel. He issued over a period of time a book of sermons. I issued a book of sermons. These were not things that I said, oh, I got to follow him. These were 
25, 30 years later. We were both honored, interesting enough, with the highest award that the Jewish community in Chicago can give, the Julius Rosenwald Award. There were three rabbis who've been honored, which is the community's award by the Jewish Federation for service. There have been three rabbis who've been awarded that award. One of them, the first one was Rabbi Simon. I'm currently the, the last one at this particular time. So there were many, many things that as I look back, I kind of learned from him watching him. He was a wonderful fundraiser. I learned to fundraise and I raised much money, a great deal of money for my congregation, for the movement, for the Federation. Didn't matter what. There are certain things that were my bailiwick. He was much more involved in mental health issues. I really wasn't involved in that kind of thing. I was a little more involved in the Zionist movement organizationally. But as I look back at it, Rabbi Bernstein, I noticed, you know, if you were to compare our careers, there was a great deal in common. And it wasn't because that's the way I planned it. It was who I was and who he was. And as I look back at it, there's no doubt that he was a mentor that I saw and that I grew with over a period of time. I'm struck by the commonality in that each of you was very dedicated to your local congregation, the men, women, and children whom you ministered to on a daily basis. And at the same time, you each built a public profile in the larger community, which I think is very striking. Yes, I would agree. It was very important to me as a rabbi. North Suburban Synod of Bethel is 1,100 family congregation. I always said I was the mayor of a city, 3,500 people. And so to minister to them was a full-time job plus, plus the teaching, plus the sermonizing, plus administration, etc. But I also felt that I needed to volunteer as a good Jew. And I volunteered in the world of the Federation, in Zionism in Israel, in interfaith work as we'll talk about in my academic work as well. And uh, that I learned from him. And I, when I would see seniors in rabbinical school, I would tell them that it is your job to get out into the community and teach what, who you are and the values of Judaism, because we have a lot to teach. And that is part of the rabbinate today, and I believe a very important part. And I know that my congregants were very proud that I was you know, known to a number of rabbis, as Rabbi Simon was, and they could go around the country and said, Oh, you're I'm my rabbi's Vernon Kurtz. Oh, I know him. And <laughs> that they felt proud of that. And hopefully they emulated me in some of that work as well. Another thing that stands out from your recollections of Rabbi Simon, and this I can appreciate as one who began my career as an assistant and associate rabbi and worked my way through the ranks. And that is that he was available to give you advice when you needed it. And he also gave you independence and space and flexibility to shape your own rabbinate. And I found that very yes. striking as well. Yeah, I would say that's the case. And, and again, I don't know if it was conscious or not, you know, the, the, but that's just how it, how it molded. If I had been somebody who was not successful, then maybe he would have been intervened more. When I decided to move on to another congregation, one of the toughest moments I had was to go into his office and saying I was going to leave. He was disappointed. He thought I would continue there, but he wished me well. And we stayed in touch during my, my time at Bethel. And as I say, I was invited back to speak at his memorial, uh, which was very meaningful for me. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to believe that somehow he was proud of who I became and he had something to do with it. Yeah, I remember his office. I I mean, I remember him. I remember the young boy. It's possible you may have been away or something, but I had occasion to go into his office because something came up when I was in school and I told my parents that I didn't believe in God and uh -huh. my father made an appointment with Rabbi Simon. And I went <laughs> Sounds into, like your dad. <laughs> I went into his ornate 
office. I remember, uh, can, I can see it. I mean, the lights upstairs, are upstairs in and, the Huffman house yes. and a, the, a mahogany desk and the, the, right. the lights were kind of dim and he was sitting behind his big desk and, and yet he met me where I was. He listened to me and he shared stories in a very jovial way. He could be very formal when the occasion called, but he was also very down to earth and approachable. There were two things that, that I would say he had that I never had. He was a great storyteller and a joke teller. I never really followed in that. And two, he always had a smile on his face, as you recall. And I, I wore my feelings on my sleeve. That's just who I am. So I, I could not emulate. Now, and again, you know, when you have a mentor, there are things that you specifically follow. And there are certain things you say, I'm deliberately not going to follow because I, that's not something that would really be me. So I couldn't do some of the things that he did. Uh, and other things I said, it's, the times have changed. I need to be a little bit different too. So Red Faith Sedek is set in the neighborhood of Hyde Park, which is on the south side of Chicago. By the time you arrived there, the Jewish population had gone down a bit. But I think one tribute to Rabbi Simon, and I think also his reform colleagues in the neighborhood, was they said, we are here to stay. We are going to sustain the Hyde Park Jewish community. And even when there was demographic change, Rudfait Sedek stayed put and remained a pillar of the community. I think that's to Rabbi Simon's credit as well. I would agree. I would agree. So another aspect of the Hyde Park community is the anchor, which is the University of Chicago. And there are many academics who are members of the congregation, and there's just a special atmosphere in that community. And as a result of the university, there's kind of a cottage industry in the neighborhood of academia. And there's a, there's an institution called Chicago Theological Seminary, which I believe now has kind of an affiliation with the university, but at least began as a separate institution institution in the neighborhood. You studied there when you were in Hyde Park. You pursued a doctorate in ministry. So I'm going to ask you if you could share a little bit of your studies there. What drew you to that? And there's a special teacher who influenced you from that time. After a few years being out of school, I just craved the need to continue to study. I mean, I was teaching. I was very involved. I was over my head being an assistant rabbi. But by 1979, I said, I'd like to do a doctorate, see what I could do. There it was. Uh, there still is a cluster of theological schools. I knew I, I couldn't do a PhD. I didn't have the time for it. I was working full-time as such, and I didn't have the inclination necessarily. But I had heard that Chicago Theological Seminary had a Doctor of Ministry program, which was basically a professional doctorate. It was a two-year study program. It was open to Jews and non-Jews, though it is a Christian Protestant theological school. I knew another colleague who had gone there, spoke to him, and he said, there's one special teacher there, Make an appointment, see what you'll think, etc. So I did, you know, just because I wanted to get back to school. I remember I was raised in a day school environment, very closed off from anything to do outside the Jewish neighborhood as such. My high, my university area time was in school, but I was also involved in USY and Ramah, and then went to Israel and seminary. So I had not had a good grounding in religions outside of Judaism. Didn't have a great deal of, shall I say, relationships with others outside my community. So it was a gamble for me to do this. Uh, but I decided that I would try to see what I could do. And I met with uh, some of the registrars there. And they said, we'd be glad to have you come. We're open to Jew studying here. You have a legitimate ordination. And they introduced me to uh, Professor Andre Lecoq 
who was a professor of Bible of Old Testament at CTS. And we began a course of study, a private study to see if I was interested and he was interested in taking me on as a student. And I remember going to the library, et cetera. I always loved learning. I always loved research. Those are the long days, long before computer, you had to sit at a typewriter and, you know, way back when and those things, writing papers and exams, I didn't think I really wanted to do, but that comes with the territory. So I decided to enroll in 1979, and I had to take a number of courses as part of my studies, including a New Testament course. I took a New Testament course at Catholic Theological Union. I went to the professor. I said, am I going to feel comfortable here? I mean, I'm all people are going to be priests. I was literally the only Jew in the school and the only Jew at CTS at that point as well. He says, yeah, I think so. If not, please come to me. Suffice it to say, I got an A-plus in the course. So uh, it worked out very well. And I studied for two years there, in addition to working full-time, writing papers, doing research, taking exams. And again, I was able to parlay some of what I knew into Jewish life and Jewish theology and Jewish ideology and Bible, but also to grow with it. And Andre Lecoq was a very special person in the life of the school and in my life as well. Just a little bit of background on him might be worthwhile yeah, for your yeah, Absolutely. He was born in 1927 in Liège in Belgium. Thank God he's still alive. Earned a PhD in Jewish literature in 1957 and in THD in Old Testament in 1961 at the University of Strasbourg in France. He taught in France. He taught in Belgium. He also taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He was here in Jerusalem for two years, something I found out not too long ago. His father actually converted to Judaism and lived in Israel and, and is buried here in Israel. I had known of Andre's great pro-Jewish stance, that his family had been very careful during the war to help Jews, etc. My father was uh, influential, at least in the first uh, decades of my life, and uh, um, he converted uh, to uh, Judaism, made the Aliyah to Israel, spent the last 15 years or so in Israel before being, before dying and being buried in uh, Ramat Gan. That's one thing, because my father never understood why his son, André, did not convert like he did. And uh, I have, of course, to justify my non-conversion. <laughs> That's minor, but, it, but it's important, at least for me. He was very open to Judaism, but he was a believing Christian. And he used to, he was very careful of calling it the prime testament, not the Old Testament. Very concerned about looking at the, the, Jew, the Jewish roots of Christianity. One of his books was called The Jewishness of Jesus. He actually asked me to write a, an Amazon review for him. Uh, on that. And he came to CTS in 1969 and was there through 1999, where he was the professor of Hebrew scriptures and became the founding director of the Center of Jewish Christian Studies. So he was involved as a Bible scholar, involved in Christian theology, but also in the Jewish roots. And I studied with him a number of intertestamental literature, biblical books. We studied the, I actually co-taught with him after I graduated 
course, on the election of Israel, on the Holocaust. He was an author of many commentaries on Bible, on the books of Daniel, Ruth, Song of Songs, Jonah. He wrote on biblical interpretation with Paul Ricure, one of the famous people involved in biblical interpretation. And he was very open to Jewish theology and Jewish background. So he made me feel very comfortable within that school. And I say it was the only Jew there. Uh, and I had to take, you know, I studied with my colleagues who were all, since it was, it was graduate, they were all either priests or they, in most cases, they were pastors, but you, we, we had a couple of priests as well who were going for a doctor of ministry. It wasn't necessary for my job. It wasn't in many cases necessary for theirs, but it allowed me to grow again, to read things that I'd not read, to learn New Testament, never learned it at the seminary. And we had to look at theology differently, had to write theology on Moby Dick, theology and I never promised you a rose garden, things that I'd never thought of before. It broadened me in ways that I had never thought of in advance. And Andre was really the anchor for me of that school because I could talk to him Bible and he knew enough Hebrew and knew that I needed to feel comfortable. Eventually, it was a two-year program. He was my advisor for what's known as a position paper, which was my theological <laughs> statement, and then a professional paper, which was the equivalent of your doctoral program, which was a periodical length article that had to be published. Eventually was published, and this will interest you. It was called, if you don't know, Family Life Education in an Urban Synagogue. It was a system of chavurot, the small fellowship study groups that established a congregation of Pitzedek. And it was eventually published in, in a periodical known as Religious Education. And Andre was the person that I relied upon for grounding in, in the Christian that stuff that I needed to learn, in the Jewish stuff I needed to learn. And we stayed in touch. As I said, I co-taught with him. And I found him a refreshing individual who just broadened my venues and my purviews and accepted me for who I was and allowed me to grow as well academically and otherwise and we've stayed in touch as you know why you, know, you may ask me why I picked these two mentors you know eventually they came together in 1981 just after I got my doctorate there was a dual celebration at Congregation North Fitzedek you may not have been there but your parents I'm sure were there it was my official installation as rabbi and the celebration of my doctorate and the two people who addressed me from the pulpit were Rabbi Ralph Simon of blessed memory and Professor Andre Lacoque. Those were the two people I wanted because they represented those parts of my life. And as I look back again, there has been a part of me that is rabbinic in the pulpit. There's a part of me that has been communal. And there's also a part of me that's been academic. But this demon at Chicago Theological Seminary allowed me to be rabbi doctor and to walk into a academic institutions and teach with a doctorate. And that is because I think Andre made me feel comfortable with his theology, with his ideology, and just sweet personage, which helped me a great deal. I find that really fascinating how Andre Lecoq was drawn to Jewish Christian dialogue and that within his own family, his father uh, right. And his son, Pierre, is a musician, mm. um, but is also, I think, a psychotherapist, if I'm not mistaken. And they wrote a book called The Jonah Complex Together, mm. which is both uh, on the book of Jonah and a psychological impact of Jonah. And I use it as the basis for one of my high holiday sermons. So everything comes together. Yeah, yeah. Another memory that you sparked. I don't have a particular recollection of the ceremony that you described in 1981. What I do remember is that in those days, the clergy at Congregation Rudfaith would wear black robes on Shabbat, and that I remember Rabbi Simon had 
stripes on his sleeves that indicated a doctorate. And I remember starting at that time, you literally earned your stripes and got stripes right. on your robe. Well said. Correct. Yes. So it's a memory I have. Yeah, so, they, they, you know, and again, as I say, I'm very proud of academically. I've written articles in, in you know, academic journals. I've been a, I'm a adjunct professor of Jewish studies at Spurtis Institute for, for Jewish learning and leadership in Chicago. I've taught here in Israel. A lot of that had to do again with the doctorate that I that I have. I've said along as a professional doctorate. It's you know it's not a, a PhD, but it allowed me to uh, to teach at academic institutions and be present at academic seminars. That I think is part of it is because Andre made me feel comfortable at CTS. You were able to earn a certain level of gravitas from the degree, but also get real learning and grounding through the the wisdom that he taught you. Correct. In 1988, as I was heading into my senior year of high school, so I'm dating myself, you made a major transition that year. After 12 years at Road Faith Zedek, you accepted your appointment at North Suburban Synagogue Bethel in Highland Park to the north of the city. And you spent the next 31 years there building the congregation and providing leadership in the Chicago Jewish community, the conservative movement, and world wide Jewry. What achievements are you most proud of looking back on your career, both within the congregation and in the larger community? I would say there are a number of things that I personally am proud of. One, Bethel is a very large congregation and a congregation of many different spirits, different, many different people. And it has, got, has gone through, prior to my time and even when I came, some difficult political movements caused by other factors in the community and other congregations that were established in the community, etc. And I was very pleased I wanted I kept the congregation together and that people had a very good feeling for the congregation and saw it as a community. I'm very community minded and I was very pleased that people saw this as their community, their worship community, their social community, their cultural community. They gave to it their volunteer time, their financial resources. And the congregation continued to grow, and I think it continues to be today a leader in, in the, not only the conservative movement, but in American Judaism. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is I was always very pleased, uh, and I said this publicly to, to people, when somebody would introduce me, this is my rabbi. Nothing could be better, because the rabbi means teacher, the rabbi means mentor, the rabbi means somebody, simply my professor or my friend, somebody that I, by using the title, the respect that's due to it. And people did that to their parents, to their grandparents grandparents, to their friends, to different acquaintances, to non-Jewish Jewish people. When I did a life cycle event, I was very proud of that. I was proud of the fact, as I've said, that I could be involved in the community and have, I believe, some impact. I'm proud of the academic part. One of the things that, as I look back on it, that we had as a program at the CTS was something called the House Church. House Church was a one-week program of intensive where we did both theology and psychology, even some psychotherapy. Very, very intense. Nine in the morning till five in the afternoon. And at one point, they asked us to draw a picture of how you saw yourself. Now, I'm a lot far from being a good artist, but I look back at it and I kept the drawing and I drew four different pieces to it that I wanted to be part of my life. First part was my family. I'm very proud of my family. We're a very close family, not only our in internal family, but our extended family. The second part was my congregation. I really wanted to be the pastor, the rabbi, the mentor, the teacher, the educator, the fundraiser. The third part was the community. I wanted to have an impact on the community that I served. It had an impact on me and allowed me to grow. The fourth part was my academic part. And I'm very pleased that I have produced books and, and continue to produce articles. I'm still writing, as you know. So I look back and say, hmm, I've accomplished a good deal. 
there's more to do. I can be a better father, husband, grandfather. I could have definitely been a different rabbi. And for some, I'm still their rabbi because I need, you know, they've had this long-term relationship. I definitely have more to serve in the community, continue to try to do that. And I have much more to learn and to teach, I hope, academically. So all of those four forces, if you will, push me. Rabbi Simon had an effect. The congregations had an effect. My congregants had an effect. My family had an effect. The academic institution had an effect. JTS, CTS. And that's always been with me all along. So if you look at achievements, I try to, I try to compartmentalize some of them. The last thing that I would say is I feel very good that I'm able to work with both lay people and rabbis of different movements and denominations in the Federation movement, in the Zionist movement, in other areas as well. And I can walk into almost any institution and know a lot of Reform rabbis or a lot of Orthodox rabbis. I'm in touch with them now by email or by phone or they're in touch with me. They ask me to comment on, on some writing of theirs. I, they comment on some writing of mine. I reached out to two co Orthodox colleagues because I was looking for some sources. They passed it over to me. I heard of a Reform colleague who lost his mother. I wrote him a letter. He wrote me back a very heartfelt note. That's very important to me. First of all, because I believe we Jews have to be united and work together. Uh, and it's my job to keep the bridges open. And I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to do that with, again, uh, Rabbi Bernstein, more work to do. I'm nowhere near where I should be. Maybe a nice plateau, but haven't hit the top of the mountain yet. I remember when you were rabbinical assembly president during your term, that's when 9-11 happened. I was already a rabbi in my first post at that point, And I just remember the support that you provided to rabbis in the field at that time during a major national and international crisis. And there were all kinds of issues that we were dealing with. I remember an email you sent to the RA membership about issues relating to funerals for remains that have not been recovered. It was in the moment and it was sensitive to where rabbis were. And you were a rabbi's rabbi at that moment. I recalled that leading up to today because we're right now in a crisis moment. It's been ongoing for a few months. It's not like that instant one moment impact of 9-11, but we've had the COVID-19 crisis for several months and it's been worldwide. Israel's been affected, all of North America. The whole world has been shut down and it's affected our Jewish community. Synagogues have not been able to have services. Camps have been shut down. Now that you have a bit of distance, you're not an active congregational rabbi, but I'm wondering what words of support you would offer to rabbis in the field who are dealing with the reality of communities in crisis right now. If I might, I'll just tell you one ane quick anecdote about 9-11 which very few people know. Um, the, that morning of 9-11 was supposed to be a meeting in Chicago, the rabbinical assembly of the nominating committee for my successor. And rabbis were flying in. And needless to say, some never made it. And some were in the air when 9-11 occurred. I was very frightened that some of my colleagues might be injured. The executive vice president, Rabbi Joel Myers, was in the air when all this occurred. Could not get back to New York. My office became the office of the rabbinical assembly, and we've tracked everybody down, <clears throat> sent them home by bus, by car, by train, however we could get them home. It was one of those uh, three, four days that I will never forget, because the rabbinical assembly office was my office. So mm -hmm. anything that you received, because it could not come out of New York, came out of uh, North Suburban Synagogue Bethel. This is a, an unbelievable period that we don't know the end of. I was just on a Zoom call, which we're all familiar with right now, where uh, the group that was reporting called it BC, AC, and, and DC. You know, 
before Corona or BC, DC during Corona and after Corona. We don't know what after Corona is yet. Uh, right now in Israel, we were in fairly good shape and now the numbers have gone up again. Nobody knows if it's just a recurrence or people aren't being careful enough or it's a second wave. Uh, there's no doubt that people feel isolated. I felt it myself. I was one who went to daily worship services every morning, haven't basically been able to do so the last three months. Uh, only now, within the last few weeks in Israel, we've been able to go back to our synagogues. I missed it. doesn't mean I wasn't praying daily, but the community is something that's always, I said before, important to me, and I miss being part of the community. In some ways, I, you know, I must tell you, I feel fortunate I retired when I did, because I think my colleagues have unbelievable challenges now, and I don't know that I could live up to some of those challenges. I do think that people need to be connected. I do think the colleagues, uh, they are working extremely hard just to connect people to something greater than themselves to reach out to people. Worship may be important, but connection is even more important. I think in this case, uh, nobody knows what the next step will be. For sure, in North America, high holidays are going to be different, and that's the touchstone for organized American Jewry in synagogues. Will the synagogues be open? How many people come in? Who will be allowed? I mean, all this is open. So I think the word connection and community still remains vital at this point, and people need support. Zoom has been wonderful in some ways. Can you imagine living this without Zoom? What world would have been? But so we can connect to people, we can see people. I can see my grandchildren in Boston that I haven't been able to see physically for months. WhatsApp in, in Israel, even three months, I couldn't see my kids, my grandchildren here. But at the same time, people have been able to learn things because of the ability to do it online. It's not enough. It is not the same kind of personal contact. And I'm hoping for the day when we can get back to that personal contact. People crave when you lose somebody, you want to hug from somebody. There's just no other way to do it. It's great to see the person's face or to hear their voice. It's not quite the same thing. When a rabbis can't walk into hospitals, it's from your chaplaincy, you know that only too well. All those things that are just yearnings of human beings cannot be answered at this point anywhere in the world. It's not Judaism, it's not Christianity, it's not Buddhism, it's anywhere in the world. This is by far the greatest and the longest turbulent period of time I've ever lived through. And we don't know the end. And I think that's part of the worst part of it. If we knew it would end by August 1, September 1, Okay, so you live, you count the days down, but we don't know. So I don't have any quick answers. I don't think anybody does. I do think the connections and staying in touch with people and trying to be sensitive to their isolation is critical. And the pastoral part of rabbis, I'm sure, is being just extended because they have their own families to worry about as well. We're all home. So while their commuting time is nothing, sitting at home, they got to worry about their own kids and their own family and their own spouses or partners or whatever it is, or their own parents who they haven't seen. So I, I think it's a very tough time. And I speak as one now who's not in the pulpit, who's not having to minister to people, but knowing that even with my own family and my colleagues and what I read and hear and the, the students that I've been teaching, there's that yearning to be together. And it's really missed. You spoke earlier about the value of Jewish unity and Jews of different stripes coming together and the vital relationships that you have that you've cultivated with form Jewish leaders and Orthodox, and that has been an important part of your career and rabbinate and speaks a lot to your integrity and the trust that people have in you as someone who can be trusted by all people. We are at a critical juncture right now in terms of Israel because Israeli government has indicated that perhaps in July there will be some sort of annexation or application of Israeli law to 
areas now in what's known as the occupied territories in the West Bank. And the prospect of this in an already divided Jewish world threatens to really drive a wedge between Israel and segments of world Jewry and further so divisions within the diaspora community. I'd like to ask, what work are you involved in now to minimize the effects of these divisions? And how can we possibly keep together as a community going forward? Well, the unity of Jewish people has been a major priority in my life and my work and my rabbinate. I deliberately became involved in the Jewish Agency. The Jewish Agency was the precursor of the Israeli government pre-1948. Ben Gurion was the head of the Jewish Agency, and then he became the Prime Minister of the State of Israel as its founder. It deals with Aliyah to Israel immigration, it deals with anti-Semitism, it deals with education. And I deliberately have sat there and worked there for a number of years on its Board of Governors because it is all things. It's global table, rabbis, non-rabbis, religious Jews, non-religious Jews, Orthodox, conservative reform, etc. I'm also involved in the World Zionist Organization, which has been the exact same thing. Within the Jewish Agency, I sit on a, on a committee known as the unity for the Jewish people. And it's our concern to try to deal with those issues that divide the Jewish people. It's been some things on conversion issues. It's been things on not as much politics, because we stay away from politics, but those divisions that relate to uh, diaspora communities in Israel as well. And I'm on a special committee known as the Ami Unity Committee, whose purpose is a very, very small group of people, whose purpose is to help Israelis understand diaspora Jewry. And in many cases, Israelis grew up recognizing that this is their culture in Israel. This is their homeland. This is where the Jewish people live and should live. For many years, Israel saw the diaspora, not as the Hutzot or the diaspora, but as the exile, as the Gola. And Jews were not full Jews unless they made Israel their home. And that's what Ben-Gurion taught and some of the people around him. And so Israelis, specifically secular Israelis in their schools, don't know a lot about diaspora Jewry and the vitality of diaspora Jewry, and therefore about Jewish pluralism and what is Orthodox and Reform and Conservative and why the Kotel becomes a symbol for all Jews and why conversion is important. So the Jewish agency got involved in this program of trying to help the principals and educators learn more about diaspora Jewry and teach their people a little more of what's known today as peoplehood. Uh, amiyut in Hebrew, it's a new Hebrew word, and to feel part of this people, of this mishpacha. And there's, I don't know, we're a committee of five to seven people. I'm currently working with the person who does the curriculum. And we sat for two hours on Zoom last week and she showed me some of her stuff and I critiqued some of the stuff and had a wonderful conversation. I sent her some of the stuff that I've read. We've met before, before the corona, we met in person. Last week was on Zoom. And they take Israeli educators after they complete this education program to the diaspora, mostly to New York, but some other places as well, to experience diaspora Jewry, to see a conservative synagogue, to see a Solomon Schechter, to see a modern Orthodox place, a JCC. So there'll be a more of a sense of what diaspora Jewry is about and that they'll be able to understand a little more of both some of the differences and some of the commonalities. So I've been working with them. The second thing that I've been doing is the Tully schools, who who are a group of schools who come out of the conservative movement, but are not officially affiliated, who teach again in the secular school system, more Judaic subjects as well. They're training educators. And it was decided to bring those educators to Chicago. At my, I pushed them a little bit, and we were able to get some money from the Jewish Federation with my help. And I'm helping to them to plan the trip, and we'll be their mentor and their leader. Should we come to Chicago? We were supposed right. to be there already. Uh, now it's planned for December. We'll see what happens. But those are two areas that I've been involved with. I'm also on here in Israel something known as the Jewish People Policy Institute, which is the largest global table of Jewish policy coming out of Jerusalem that deals with the future, 
And I've sat with them and worked with some of their scholars on some of these issues as well, and Jewish pluralism in the States and in North America, of the movements here in Israel as well. And the final thing that I've done in my little time here is I'm a senior fellow at the Hartman Institute, which teaches not only rabbis, but educators both in Israel and outside of Israel, again, Judaica and peoplehood. And I was able to, very fortunate to be now on a, in an academic seminar with all Israelis, all academics on the concept of peoplehood. I'm sort of the voice of the diaspora to some extent, and it's been, I've read their papers and I've commented and they've turned to me at certain times and, and those kind of things. So in my own little way, I'm trying to get Israelis to understand a little more the diaspora context and why diaspora Jewry feels a little bit removed and why the Kotel is such a symbol, etc. The, the, the specific issue of annexation is something that's political and people across the board have different opinions. You can be orthodox and disagree with the current government on annexation. You can be reform and agree with them. It doesn't necessarily go by your religious denomination or Zionist party, it, to some extent, but not totally. And in that realm, I'm not sure exactly what happened, what will happen. I've already voted twice in Israel, made my voice heard there. And I am concerned of what might happen. The breaks between American Jewry in particular and Israel are there. The fissures are there. Uh, Israel needs to be a bipartisan issue in the United States. It's not getting to be that right way right now. Republicans are right one way. Democrats have letters another way. It concerns many of us. I'm not involved in the politics in Israel right now, nor in the politics of the state, so I can't deal with that. So I'm trying to do my little part within the unity of the Jewish people in that realm. And I have some other plans that I hope will take part in the future of training some of the people who come here to learn more about Israel and really see the real Israel and understand it when they go back to be leaders in the diaspora. So we've covered your glorious career from Hyde Park and Highland Park and Israel and things in between. I'm wondering if there are any other things that you would like to say about the state of the Jewish community today and our path forward in uncertain times and any other messages that you feel are important at this time. Well, if I stand in my feet on both sides, if you will, to American Jewry, I would say that community is very important. I continue to believe that people need to be affiliated with synagogues and JCCs and support the federations can support the mainstays of Jewish life. They are coming through in ways that people did not expect beforehand, and they're showing their strong anchor and people without communities are, I believe, suffering even more. I would say to American Jewry, Hebrew is critical. This study of Hebrew brings Israelis and diaspora Jews together. And it's clearly it's made my life here because I knew Hebrew much easier from a cultural and assimilated point of view of making it in Israeli culture and life. And I would say, don't give up on Israel. Israel is the greatest experiment of the Jewish people in 2000 years with unbelievable possibilities and with a great deal to offer the Jewish people in terms of spiritual home, physical home, safety, the startup nation, scholarship, all the above. There is no feeling like being in Israel during the holidays, and American Jewry needs to understand that it can criticize a government, but it can never delegitimize the state of Israel, because in that way, you delegitimize our Jewish people totally, as far as I'm concerned. On the Israeli side, I think they need to be open to recognize that they don't have all the answers, that though they're a sovereign state, they keep saying that they rely very heavily on the Jewish people. But they should listen to the Jewish people. They should understand that Judaism is not simply one answer, and that being the chief rabbinate and the strict interpretation of Jewish law. There are other ways to be Jewish. There are other ways to understand how to be Jewish and to recognize your affiliation in Jewish life, and that the voluntary part of the diaspora communities is something that can be taught 
here in Israel that would be extremely important and helpful. And I would say to both groups, don't give up on the fact that Judaism has a message. We are to be or lagoim. We are to be ultimately a light to the nations. We are to be involved in tikkun olam, not in its bland sense, but to perfect the world, uh, as the text says, in, in the, the kingdom of God. We are ultimately one family, whether we like it or not. As Rabbi Soloveitchik said, we have a fate and a destiny which is common. It makes no difference whether you're Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, humanist, gay, straight. If you were Jewish during the Second World War, Hitler and the Nazis wanted to kill you. Period. End of story. We are all part of this. The good parts and the bad parts. I do believe we all stood at Sinai symbolically. We are welcoming to others who want to join us. And we still have a great message. We are the most ancient people who returned to their land after 2,000 years. And what a time it is. With all the problems, with all the difficulties, and all the challenges, I said this many times where I burnt into the congregation, what a privilege it is. I am the first generation in 2,000 years that's not know a world without the state of Israel. That is a privilege, a challenge, an opportunity, and a burden at the very same time. But it's something that I take very seriously. I try to teach to the, my congregants when I was a pulpit rabbi, to my students in any place that I taught, to my family, and continue to say to myself. And that's something that I want the Jewish people to recognize too. Israel's not a gift. You have to earn it. Judaism's not a gift. You have to earn it. And life is not a gift, I think. You have to earn it. Those would be my messages. Rabbi Kurtz, you have been an anchor in my life for as long as I can remember, and it was reconfirmed today as to why that is. You are a wise sage, a bold and caring leader, a compassionate pastor, and I offer you blessings for good health and the opportunity to continue to share your Torah with the Jewish people. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And one last thing, I'm very proud of you who have been my student. And as you said, we've been together lots of things over the time, some very happy times, and unfortunately some sad times too in your family at, at sad occasions. I'm very pleased to have been interviewed by you, to have a very close relationship, and I look forward to great things from you as well, Rabbi Princeton. Thank you. God bless you and all the best. Thank you very much. I wish to thank my guest, Rabbi Vernon Kurtz, for joining me on the My Teacher podcast. I invite you to look at the show notes where you can find more information about Rabbi Kurtz and his two teachers, Dr. Andre Lacoque and the late Rabbi Ralph Simon. After this outro, keep listening for a bonus clip of Rabbi Kurtz addressing me and my wife, Ariella, at our wedding ceremony, August 16, 1998. I wish to thank some special teachers of mine, three children, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Theme music is by Sam Bernstein, who is also our sound engineer. Production assistant is Noam Bernstein. Internet art and graphic design are by Esther Bernstein. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. I welcome comments, including suggestions for future guests at myteacherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out through Twitter at Podcast Teach, as well as Facebook and Instagram. May the wisdom of your teachers guide you, and may you be a teacher to others. As you well know, there's always one last thing for a ton to do at a Jewish wedding, to break the glass. Symbolic of many things. We remembered, of course, the Zecher Lafourban, 
Only two weeks ago today, we commemorated that with Tisha B'Av. And we will continue to break this glass until there will be total peace, harmony, contentment for not only our people, but all human beings. I'd like to commend another reason for the two of you as well. Once this is shattered, it can be put, cannot be put back together as it once was beforehand. And so it is with human feelings and emotions. Once they are hurt, once they are bruised, once they are broken, they cannot be as they were beforehand. So as we wish you a Mazal Tov, as we look forward to celebrating this great day together with you, we ask you to care with one for one another, to nurture the love that you have in your souls and your hearts for each other, to truly be Hatan every single day of your life. Mazal Tov!